0: Morning. I get nervous every time I come up here. Honestly, fidget with my things. Um. But thank God, um, you know we've been looking at the subject of the kingdom of God. Last week, Elder Jaimiang started this series, looking at three parables that Jesus told about the kingdom. And if you recall, he drew three practical applications. Um, the three P's. One is we need to be perceptive of God's working in our lives. Two, we need to be patient, trusting God's perfect timing. But at the same time, and that's number three, we need to be proactive, cooperating with God in ushering in his rule in the world. Today we look at the subject of grace, grace. You know, as our brother Chupeng has, has uh, so rightly put, grace, it's a beautiful word. It's a glorious concept. Dictionary.com defines five different but related meanings to this word grace. One is elegance or beauty of form, manner, motion or action. Two is a pleasing or attractive quality or endowment. Three is favour or goodwill. Four is a manifestation of favour, especially by a superior. And five is mercy, clemency, as the President will have the authority to, to grant clemency to a drug trafficker who deserves death or capital punishment under Singapore laws and pardon. And as we reflect on this This fivefold definition, we will realize that all the five facets of grace are true in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. His elegance and his beauty that we just sang about so much a while ago, his pleasing qualities, and above all, his favor, his mercy, and his goodwill. And we, we are the recipients of those benefits. And if there's one thing that we as Christians should sing about, shout out and manifest all the days of our lives, it is grace. It is grace. Grace should be our perpetual theme. We read from uh, Luke chapter 7. This is our text this morning. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at a Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Verse 38, And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 dinarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards a woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not, pour, you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet." Therefore, verse 47, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50 is One of the most beautiful stories in the New Testament. As you can see, there are three characters. The woman, Simon the Pharisee, and of course, Jesus himself. And each of these three characters exhibit a different aspect of grace, or as we will see, grace opposite. The opposite of grace. What was the setting? Well, the occasion was a dinner function. A man called Simon invited Jesus to a meal. Why did Simon offer it? Well, the text does not quite say, but Simon, we know, was a Pharisee. And the word Pharisee meant separation. Simon belonged to a religious order, a group, that arose between the period from the close of the book of Malachi, New Testament, about 400 BC, and the opening of the New Testament in Matthew. Those 400 years. The historians call that period the Maccabean period. If you remember, uh, Brother Jamiang referred to Jacob Maccabeus as a nationalistic Jew who arose during that period with the hope of freeing Israel from its foreign subjugators. And the Pharisees had a very noble goal at the inception. They committed themselves to preventing the Jews from mixing with idolatrous people around them. But in the process, their teaching hardened and they became obsessed with external observances and very burdensome interpretations of the law of Moses rather than internal renewal and true obedience to God. And because of that, the Pharisees and other religious leaders were hostile towards Jesus and the Pharisees became associated with the idea of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And on many occasions, Jealous of his ministry and success and influence, the Pharisees wanted to catch Jesus and to trip him up or get him into an awkward situation so that they could accuse him of defying the law of Moses that was held in high regard by all the Jews. So did Simon the Pharisee have such an agenda when they invited Jesus to the meal? Maybe he did. The text does not say that clearly. Regardless of it, Jesus accepted his invitation and went to the dinner. Let's look at the three characters. The woman. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, we learned that when Jesus entered Simon's house, the host had forgotten three common courtesies of an Eastern home. One, upon arrival... Bring water to wash your feet. Two, kiss the guest's cheek as a mark of welcome. Never mind who, are, who appears on the photo. And three, offering the guest oil for his head. But what the host failed to do, the woman did in extravagance. Who was this woman? The Bible says that she was a woman who lived a sinful life. In other words, she was a prostitute, a harlot, someone at the other end of the social spectrum from Simon the Pharisee. Simon was here. This woman, who was unnamed by the way, was there. How was it that this woman, this this prostitute, was even allowed into the house of a strict Pharisee? Well, meals in those days were quite often public. Public. The door to the dining room was open and there were seats all around the walls of the house belonging to the host. So people were free to come in and take their places on those seats at the side of the wall. They didn't need a ticket and there were no bouncers to keep free riders out. And they were also free to speak to the host and others at the official table on any topic, any subject of discussion, any news of the day. So here she was this prostitute who showed up uninvited to the dinner the bible says that she brought a container of perfume if this perfume were something called nard or spike nard full word, a very intense aromatic oil each pound of it in those days would have cost 300 denarii equivalent to about a oh, year's salary of an ordinary wage earner. So, try to imagine the scene. The woman might have waited near the door for Jesus to arrive. She probably expected that Jesus' feet would have been washed by one of Simon's servants. That was common courtesy. And after his feet were washed, she might then have planned to anoint his feet with the perfume she brought. But when she realized that Jesus' feet were not going to be washed because of Simon's neglect, she did An amazing thing. She kissed his feet. She kissed his dirty, unwashed feet. You know, the the Greek word for kiss here does not just mean to kiss as a mother would kiss a child, but to smother with kisses. And as she began to smother his feet with kisses, Tears began to flow. And as the tears began to flow, the woman might have noticed that the tears actually carried off the dirt from the dirty feet as well. So she used her tears to wash Jesus' feet. And since there was no towel available to her, what did she do? She did an even more amazing thing. She took off her head covering unbound her hair, and used her hair to dry Jesus' feet. You know, according to some rabbis at that time, the act of unbounding her hair alone was enough reason for a woman to be divorced because women who exposed the hair to public view was considered promiscuous and shameful. It was an erotic act like what this lady sometimes does on stage. They let her concerts in Indonesia and Philippines to be banned. The reaction from the crowd was one of unbelief and horror. You know, it's the equivalent of a stripper walking into this worship hall right now and doing a lap dance for Elder Benny Tan. You hear Benny? What would Brenda think? What would Barnabas think? What would Bernice, Beatrice, Bernadette and the dog think? What would the rest of us think? Imagine the horror and the revulsion of Simon and the rest of the guests when they realized what was going on. Here was a loose woman with a reputation, a harlot, Fondling Jesus, expressing her devotion to him with such a shameless act. Jesus must have been a morally loose man himself to allow that. And that was not all. She also used up every ounce of the perfume. Here was an act of extravagance, similar to what Mary of Bethany did in the house of a brother Lazarus that we read in John chapter 12 and similar also to what Brother Treeping referred to earlier as an, what another woman did in the house of Simon the leper in Mark chapter 14. There is some debate whether these incidents refer to the same event but what is not in debate is the attitude of the women who poured the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet in each of those incidents. It was an almost a reckless act, an act of abandon that could only arise from a heart that was so deeply touched by grace that nothing else matters other than the object of her devotion. What made this prostitute brave the ridicule of the people and even Simon the Host? Why was she so unselfconscious and oblivious to the stares and the whispers and the scorn of the respectable people around her. We are not told if she had any previous encounter with the Lord, but as we later read the rebuke that Jesus had for Simon after telling the parable, we can guess that it was God's amazing grace that drew this woman to Jesus in the realisation that the person whose feet she was kissing and washing and anointing was the only one able to accept her just as she was, with all her moral uncleanness. And more than that, this person whose feet she was washing and kissing and anointing is the only one who can forgive her sins. Her actions were her way of expressing her grateful love to the Lord. And as the parable that Jesus later told highlighted, she loved much because she was forgiven much, and that love made her forget about everything else. <clears throat> Shortly after the ascension, his ascension to the throne of Israel, we read in uh, chapter Second Samuel chapter six that David wanted to consolidate his rule and bring the Ark of the Covenant. To Jerusalem from a place called Kiriath Jearim, in the house of a man called Abinadab you know the ark had been left there and forgotten since the days of the prophet Samuel and during the return procession the oxen that was pulling the cart on which the ark was placed stumbled, it tripped and Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab stretched out his hand to prevent the ark from falling, and what happened God was displeased and struck Uzzah dead for touching holy things with unclean hands because only the priests were allowed to touch the ark. And even then, they had to do it with a lot of care. And when that thing happened, David was afraid and instead of welcoming the ark to Jerusalem, decided to leave it in the house of a man named Obed-Edom. Second Samuel 6, verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Can you imagine that? Every six steps, sacrifice a bull and a calf. Every six steps. You know, you take ages to reach Jerusalem, even if it's a short journey. David Verse 14, wearing a linen effort, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpet. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Michal was his wife. And when, he, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. When David, going down to verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me, rather than your father or anyone from his house. When he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Think about it. King David, King David, wearing an effort linen, a linen effort instead of his kingly robes, danced and leaped before the Lord with all his might, becoming very unbecoming in the process of praising the Lord. For King David, for a prostitute in Luke chapter 7, grace, grace calls forth extravagance and an almost reckless abandon. No reputation is worth preserving No perfume is too expensive, no price too high when grace comes. Let's contrast that with the attitude of Simon the Pharisee. I think he would rather be dead than be caught having a sinful woman touch him or associate with him in any way. When Jesus allowed this, this sinful woman, this, this prostitute, to unbound a hair in public and smother his feet with kisses and anoint them with perfume, Simon's conclusion was that this, this Jesus doesn't deserve his reputation. He was actually a morally loose person. His, Simon's, was a quiet antagonism, just short of open hostility, born of self-righteousness and of pride. You know, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? Got it from the library. And he had a term to describe Simon the Pharisee's attitude. It's the opposite of grace. It's ungrace. And if we allow this antagonism, this ungrace to fester to boil, to just simmer underneath at the extreme. At the end of the day, it would be nice and nice But I want to read you a rather long story from this take Big story. And I do want to diminish the force of it. I'm reading you short portions. I'm going to read to you a whole three, four pages long. It's quite long. Bear with me. But it spans several generations and it talks about how unraised gets on from one generation to another generation. It so our family Enough anymore, and about mine, Daisy, closing in on a birthday as I writes, shudders when she talks about those days. The father was me mean drunk, she says. Daisy used tower in the corner, saw and her baby brother and sister across the linoleum floor. She hated him. She hated him being father with all her heart. One day, the father declared that he wanted his wife out of the house by noon. All ten kids crowded round their mother, clinging to her skirt, crying, No, don't go. But the father did not down. Holding on brothers and sisters for support, Daisy the windows and mother walked down the sidewalk, shoulders a droop, a suitcase in each hand, growing smaller and smaller until finally she disappeared from view. Some of the children eventually with the mother, and some went to live with other relatives. They fell on Daisy to stay with her father, the abusive father. She locked a hard knot of bitterness inside her, a tumour of hatred over what he had done to the family. Both kids dropped school early in order to take jobs or join the army, and then one day they moved away, fighting. don't you wear one hat? Then he said to everyone was a father He said, up. hold told he wanted to a restoration one night. To earn it, he first had to hand worship service. When on blossom of the other trunk, where the sin actually worked, the demons in him wiped right down. He sobered up. He began studying the Bible. His life, he felt loved and accepted. He felt clean. And now, he told his children he was hooking them up one by one to ask for forgiveness. He couldn't defend anything that had happened. He couldn't make it right. But he was sorry. More sorry than they could possibly image. And the families of their own were initially skeptical. Some had 30, expecting him to fall off the wagon any moment. Others figured he would soon ask for money. Neither happened, and in time, the father warned them over, all except Daisy. Long ago, Daisy had vowed never to speak to her father. That man, she called him, again. Her father's reappearance rattled her badly, and old memories of his drunken rages came flooding back as she lay in bed at night. He can't undo all just, all that just by saying, I'm sorry, Daisy insisted. She wanted no part of him. The father may have given up drinking, but alcohol had damaged his liver beyond repair. He got very sick, and for the last five years of his life, he lived with one of his daughters, Daisy's sister. They lived, in fact, eight houses down the street from Daisy on the very same row house block. Keeping her vow, Daisy never once stopped in to visit her dying father, even though she passed by his house whenever she went grocery shopping or caught a bus. Daisy did consent to let her own children visit her grandfather. Nearing the end, the father saw a little girl come to his door and step inside. Oh, Daisy, Daisy, you've come to me at last, he cried, gathering her in his arms. The adults in the room didn't have the heart to tell him the girl was not Daisy, Daisy, but Daisy's daughter, Margaret. He was Hallucinating Grace. All her life, Daisy determined to be unlike her father. And indeed, she never touched a drop of alcohol. Yet she ruled her own family with a milder form of the tyranny she had grown up under. She would lie on a couch with a rubber ice pack on her head and scream at the kids, Shut up! Why did I ever have you stupid kids anyway? You've ruined my life. The Great Depression had hit, and each child was one more mouth to feed. He had six in all, rearing them in a two-bedroom row house she lives in to this day. In such close quarters, they seemed always underfoot. Some nights, she gave them all whippings just to make a point. She knew they had done wrong even if she hadn't caught them. Hard as steel, Daisy never apologised, never forgave. Her daughter, Margaret, remembers as a child coming to tears to apologise for something she had done. Daisy responded with a parental catch-22. You can't possibly be sorry. If you were sorry, really sorry, you wouldn't have done it in the first place. Makes sense, right? I've heard many such stories of ungrace from Margaret, whom I knew well. All her life she determined to be different from her mother, Daisy. But Margaret's life had its own tragedies some large, some small. And as her four children... Entered their teenage years, she felt she was losing control of them. She too wanted to lie on the couch with an ice pack, nursing a headache presumably, and scream, Shut up! She too wanted to whip them just to make a point or maybe to release some of the tension coiled inside her. Her son Michael, who turned 16 in the 1960s, especially got under her skin. He listened to rock and roll, wore granny glasses, let his hair grow long. Margaret kicked him out of the house when she caught him smoking pot and he moved into a hippie commune. She continued to threaten and scold him. She reported him to a judge. She wrote him out of her will. She tried everything she could think of, and nothing got true to Michael. The words she flung up against him fell back, useless, until finally one day, in a fit of anger, she said, I never want to see you again as long as I live. That was 26 years ago, and she has not seen him since. Michael is also my dear friend. Sometimes, several times during those 26 years, I've attempted some sort of reconciliation between the two. Each time I confront again the terrible power of ungrace. When I asked Margaret if she regretted anything she had said to her son, if she'd like to take anything back, she turned on me in a flash of hot rage as if I were Michael himself. I don't know why God didn't take him long ago for all the things he's done, she said with a wild, scary look in her eye. Her fury caught me off guard. I stared at her for a minute, her hands clenched, her fists florid, tiny muscles twitching around her eyes. Do you mean you wish your own son was dead? I asked her later. She never answered. Michael emerged from the 60s mellower, his mind dulled by LSD. In Hawaii lived to the woman, left her, tried another, left her, and got married. Sue is the real thing, he told me when I visited him once. This will last. It did not. I remember a phone conversation with Michael interrupted by the annoying technological feature known as call waiting. The line clicked and Michael said, excuse me a second, and then left left me holding a silent phone receiver for at least four minutes. He apologised when he came back. His mood was darkened. It was Sue, he said. Wrestling some of the last financial issues of the day. I don't know you still have contact with Sue. I said making conversation I don't. He cut in. Using same to I heard from his mother. Margaret, I hope I will never see her again as long as I live. Long story. You get the point. Ungrace. Of ungrace. Passes from one generation to another generation. Finally. Let's look at Jesus. The question which expresses the issue which Simon the Pharisee found to be a block can be found in Luke chapter 5, verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? This was what the Pharisees asked Jesus. Simon could not conceive of Jesus knowingly allowing this woman to touch him, but washing his feet, drying them with her hair, anointing them with expensive perfume. Why would Jesus possibly associate himself with sinners? Why indeed? Short answer, of course, is grace. Not just grace, but grace abounding. Grace abounding. You know, Jesus told a parable. It's a very simple parable, only two verses long. There's this moneylender, this tailong, you know, who obviously doesn't care about money. He's got two guys who borrowed money from him. One owes him a large amount and the other a smaller amount. Then based on nothing at all, he just cancels the debt. Just like you bankers writing off Greek debt. Heroes at that time would have been familiar with this idea of cancelling debt. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and in Leviticus chapter 25, we learn about the year of jubilee where all debts, all debts are cancelled. So it's not a new concept. Which of the two, Jesus asked Simon, would love the moneylender more? The answer was obvious. The one who owed the most would love the man the most. And Jesus said that the corollary of this is true. He who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus takes this principle, applies it to Simon and the prostitute. Simon shunned the woman because she was a sinner and expected Jesus to do likewise. And Jesus rebuked Simon by showing that in every respect, the woman, this woman has outdone Simon in her extravagant and unselfconscious acts of love and devotion. And so the contrast between the Simon and the woman marks Simon out as the one who loves little. To Simon, the woman was the greatest sinner. To Jesus, the woman was the greater lover as well. The difference between the woman and Simon was the understanding of who they were. The woman knew her place. She was desolate and helpless in the presence of Jesus. She knew the kind of person she was and how much she needed Jesus and his forgiveness. And out of that realization and gratitude for his acceptance, And forgiveness, she abandoned herself to the most extravagant and shameless acts of devotion. Simon, on the other hand, maybe was more like us. He was kind of like stood back, silently judged. He had spent his entire life making sure he was better than this, this woman, this sinner. His was an antagonistic, his was an antagonism. His was a judgmental spirit. A self-righteous pride that blinded him to grace. And when Jesus speaks to this woman in the final verses of our passage, he makes clear to her the basis of her forgiveness. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Did this woman deserve forgiveness? do we deserve forgiveness? Of course we don't. But Jesus gave it anyway. That's grace. That's abounding grace. That's amazing grace. Jesus once told a parable in Matthew about a farmer who hired workers for his vineyard. You might remember that story. Some clocked in at sunrise, some at morning coffee break, Some at lunchtime, some at afternoon coffee break, and some just one hour before quitting time. Everybody seemed happy until payroll time, when those who worked 12 hours under the blazing 40-degree sun learned that the guys who worked only one hour got exactly the same pay as they did. So much for employee motivation. What kind of labor economics is that? What kind of fairness is that? Indeed, that's not economics. That's grace. Abounding grace. Grace is our theme. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. It doesn't depend on the recipient at all, whether he or she is good enough, smart enough, repentant enough. To warrant it. Instead, it depends totally on the dispenser of grace, the giver of grace. Look at Jesus. He did not let any institution interfere with his love for the individual. Jewish racial and religious policies did not allow him to speak with a Samaritan woman at the well, especially one who had a questionable moral background. His disciples included a hated tax collector, Matthew who was viewed as a traitor of Israel. His disciples also include a zealot, a super patriot, an extreme right-wing guy, you know, a Ku Klux Klan guy. At the same time, he met with Nicodemus, a thoughtful and observant Pharisee. He also met with a Roman centurion. He dined in the house of Simon the Pharisee, as we've read, and also in the house of Simon the leper, an unclean man. That, my friends is grace, and it is amazing. In the same book, Philip Yancey's book, he describes an incident at the end, which I want to share with you. Bill Moyers, who is a TV journalist who served as press secretary to President Lyndon Johnson, once produced a documentary documentary film on the hymn, Amazing Grace, written by uh, Englishman John Newton. And one scene was filmed at Wembley Stadium in London back in 1988. You know, many rock bands had gathered there and jammed together as part of the 70th birthday tribute concert for South African freedom fighter Nelson Mandela. For some reason, the promoters scheduled a black opera singer, Jesse Norman, as the closing act. So for 12 hours, rock bands like Guns N' Roses blasted the crowd through loudspeakers, stirring up the fans who were already high on beer and drugs. The crowd yells for more curtain calls and the groups obliged, blasting them away. And all this while, Jesse Norman was in the dressing room being interviewed by Bill Moyers. And Jesse Norman tells Bill Moyers that John Newton, the writer of this hymn, Amazing Grace, might have borrowed an old tune sung by black slaves themselves. Redeeming the song, just as John Newton himself had been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So finally, the time comes for the song, for her to sing. A single, this was night time. Huh? A single circle of lights followed Jesse Norman. Try to imagine this. Who was a big, as you can see, a big, majestic black woman, African-American Wearing a flowing African dress called the dashiki, and you can see that this picture—no backup, no band, no instruments—the crowd stirs, restless. Nobody in the crowd recognizes who she was. I don't know who this person is, right? I don't. I don't either. A, a voice in the crowd yells for more Guns and Roses. Others join in the cry. The scene, then alone, a cappella, Jesse Norman begins to sing very slowly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. Then a remarkable thing happens in Wembley Stadium that night. 70,000 rowdy rock fans fall silent before her aura of grace. And by the time Jesse Norman sings the second verse, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved, the soprano has the crowd in her hands. And by the time she reaches the third verse, Twas grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Several thousand fans are singing along digging far back in nearly lost memories for words they they heard and probably sang long time ago when they were kids Jessie Norman later confessed she had no idea what happened at Wembley stadium that night but we all know don't we the world thirsts and hungers for grace and when grace descends the world falls silent before it. Brothers and sisters, will we be ever ready to dispense grace to those around us who need it? I want to invite the musicians to come forward as we prepare for the closing song. Brother cheeping and the rest, may I Encourage you to just take a moment to come before the Lord. We're going to sing the song Amazing Grace, but a slightly different version My Chains Are Gone. Let's quieten ourselves before the Lord. Which of persons in Luke's story better describe us? When grace comes and grace has come, are we like Simon? Self-righteous, aloof, antagonistic, loving little, judgmental of others who do not conform to our ideas of what is right and wrong? Will we be like Daisy, the woman in Philip Yancey's story, who allowed that antagonism toward her father, her abusive father, to develop into bitterness and hardness of heart against others, even her own children? Or will we be like the prostitute, the sinner? Though living a life of sin, she knew where forgiveness would be found, And having been forgiven, forgiven much, she loved much. Will we be self-forgetful, extravagant, shameless even, in our affection and love toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward others around us? As we sing the closing song, can I invite you all to rise? As we sing the closing song, if you feel the need to come forward for prayer and to talk to someone Please do so. Don't worry about your neighbors and what they think. Be courageous and be self-unconscious or unself-conscious like the woman in Luke. If you prefer to stay in your seat and pray by yourself quietly, please feel free to do so. If you feel like lifting up your hands in gratitude and worship at the grace that has come down, don't let anything hinder you. Amazing grace. Apostle John says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Help us to recognize that we have been forgiven very much and enable us to love You and obey You much in return. In Jesus' name, Amen. The service is over please be seated if you feel that you want to come forward for prayer please do otherwise